Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Companies today must deliver on both growth and impact. Not just to build a better future, but to ensure it's a future that companies can thrive in. Fortunately, businesses of any size can leverage purpose to drive profit and take advantage of rising market forces driven by investors, employees, and consumers who want to invest in, work for, and buy from companies doing good. So I'm very excited about today's guest, who was the former associate dean of the number one innovation school in the US, and who's a global expert on how organizations solve challenges related to growth and impact. You'll hear from us both as to what we believe the future of leadership must look like if we hope to build our businesses and transform our future. What does this mean for your personal and professional life? How do you lead in such turbulent and uncertain times? And how can business be a prosperous force for good in the world? Let's dig in and find out. From We First and Goal 17 Media, welcome to Lead with We. I'm Simon Mannering, and each week I talk with purposeful business and thought leaders about the revolutionary mindsets and methods you can use to build your bottom line and a better future for all of us. And I'm excited to have a very special episode, which is called our point of view episode. And that's where we actually don't do the regular interviews with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and founders, but rather speak to a subject matter expert so that you actually get to hear our discussion through a certain lens. And that lens today is really leadership and management. And I'm having a little bit of a fanboy moment because I'm so excited to have Dr. Tom Hunsaker joining us who is the former Associate Dean of Innovation for the world's top-ranked global management school, Thunderbird School of Global Management. And we'll discuss what leadership can and must look like to ensure your company thrives while also scaling its impact, and how to find balance in your personal life, company culture, and place in the world to best serve yourself and our future. So Tom, welcome to Lead With We. Simon, fantastic to be here with you. Looking forward to the discussion. Now, Tom, you and I have been deeply invested in this whole idea as business as a force for change for, for a long time now, through different lenses, whether it be through the door of purpose or otherwise. But let me ask you this. I mean, every six months, every three months over the last few years, it seems to be like we're living in a new world. Every week is a new world. How would you characterize where this whole dialogue is right now, good or bad, in terms of business showing up in the way that it needs to? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. If if we were to zoom out a little bit, in some ways, it feels like we can characterize the current moment as this very significant shift from kind of the relic of shareholder capitalism, which strongly emphasized investors and customers, almost to the exclusion of everyone else, to this very kind of resurgence, strong resurgence of multi-stakeholder capitalism. And, and so I, I, I think if we look at it through those lens and then kind of have the discipline to help ourselves or to ask ourselves to look at the integrated interests within those multi-stakeholders, it gives us a different perspective as leaders. In some ways, it makes the job just a little bit bigger than it was previously, but in other ways, it really clarifies 
where we need to be focusing our attention. I love the shift away from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism. That there's something that royally, this is a technical Australian term, pisses me off, which is there's a lot of discussion in and around you know, the need or the responsibility to share more evenly in the benefits of stakeholder capitalism, but there's not enough discussion about sharing in the responsibilities of it. In as much as a consumer or a leader or a supplier or an employee, we all need to show up differently if we're going to achieve a different result, which means what I buy, where I work, where I invest my money, what car I drive, what diet I have, and how I show up in my professional capacity at work. So that if we want to share more evenly in the benefits, we've got to share in the responsibilities as well. Would you say that's fair, off base? No, I, I think that's completely fair. And I think there's a lot there. And, and maybe we can put two things on the table and, and then let's talk about it. On the company side or the, the leader side of things, we're seeing this shift from compensatory, which is if you were fantastic at one thing or if you were delivering financial returns, then somehow the other things or, or maybe the unsavory aspects of, of your approach could be glossed over. On the front that we're shifting to now, we're starting to see this much more combinatorial approach, which is actually you're only as strong as your weakest behavior. And when we look at it through that lens, absolutely the leader has to now look at these integrated interests across the stakeholders. But I think we also have to be looking at ourselves in the mirror a little bit here and recognizing that we have agency. Right. And with that agency, it's not necessarily fair to project onto others our morality or our interests without being able to reflect ourselves or being willing to reflect ourselves on the decisions that we're taking. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And one of the things I try when we work with brands, large or small, is we say, really, you're not the center of gravity and you talk about yourselves to others and try and inspire or compel them to buy your product or work for you or whatever, but rather you're a platform on which different stakeholders from suppliers, employees, and consumers can actually stand to express or bring to life their own agency for change that, that they want to see in their own lives and in our future to give them fulfillment and compensation and so on. So I really believe that brands need to be a platform out there for the agency of others because you engage them because it's about them and then they become effective advocates and amplifiers for whatever the company's doing because they're so invested in it, they're part of it. So, you know, that, that's the approach that we take. And I think this takes us to an interesting place, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Simon, because from the brand perspective, it seems like, and again, please push back if need be, it seems like the easier thing to do is for the marketing teams to focus on understanding the need and then putting words or messages to that, but not so much on delivering on the deed or the actual right. substantive elements of, of what that might look like or what those needs or what that real purposeful intent looks like. How are you seeing companies reconcile that? Because there's a lot of PR benefit to putting these messages out and, and to being attached to what seems to be a multi-stakeholder approach. And yet um, there's also a lot of risk to being viewed as inauthentic when your efforts or lack of efforts are exposed. Yeah, I think there's a few parts, you know, to that answer. One is, I think the, the encouraging news is that the BS radar of every stakeholder out there is so highly attuned now. We've over the last decade of social media and so on, we've become emboldened in terms of it's not just a consumer pushing back against a CPG brand because they don't like a product, but leaders are being called out in so many different ways. You know, the Me Too movement being a great 
example. So you've got not just consumers calling out brands and not just employees calling out brands, but now you've got the mm -hmm. investor class calling out brands. That's one component. So I think we can take heart from the fact that no one's got any tolerance for disingenuous behavior. Secondly, I think we have to recognize that in and around any conversation, whether it's sustainability or CSR in the times you know gone past, or whether it's purpose now or ESG, there's a there's an evolution of that conversation, the sophistication and maturity of that conversation. That includes a shakeout, like you've seen with ESG recently, where you know it's the shiny squirrel. There's the flight of all this capital. We're all going to go and sort of slap that ESG label on our fund, and then you know all's well and good, and we're going to attract everybody and, and the investors we need. And those disingenuous behaviors have shaken out. And that doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means that that it's that early first flush of excitement or interest, and then it, it shakes out and matures. So. That disingenuous behavior, it's not good or okay, but it, it has its place. Then I think thirdly, I think you're starting to see now just this recognition that the change we need to make in the world is not linear because the problems we're solving for are concurrent and compounding in the future and hurtling back towards us in the present, in which case the needs that we need to solve for are exponential. They're not linear. And so is the expectation on business to do it. So if you're sitting there and you're a CEO of a founder or some company, you're sitting there going, well, what did we do last year? And how can we iterate or incrementally kind of innovate and do a little bit better than we did last year? You're not solving for the reality of the world that we live in. And I believe you need to actually project out to the future three or five years down the track and reverse engineer how you show up and build milestones in terms of that. So back out of the future rather than build on the past. So I put my trust in, you know, all the stakeholders that are calling out companies now. I see that shakeout in any dialogue ESG or otherwise as a necessary part of the sort of evolution of that conversation. But I also recognize that companies that are sort of sleepwalking their way into the future are going to be caught flat-footed because these issues are becoming kind of so real and present in our daily lives and it's exponential. And so you need to get ahead of it just to be relevant. You know, and it's it, it, listening to you, Simon, reminds me of a, a very recent conversation I had with the CEO of a, a tech company that really is on the leading edge of being able to quantify some of these ESG initiatives. And really interesting to talk about the different interests within a, a company. And, you know, he'll say the marketing department is really excited about the message aspect of this right. or the stories that can be told from this. The finance department is starting to sharpen the pencil hmm. and say, wow, I, I mean, it's neat to know that you can now quantify these things. You can quantify the the, the carbon footprint down to the very shirt that we're wearing, but that's going to cost what? Right. And it's going to involve what kind of operational complexity. And so there's the absolute, we need to project into the future and, and act with this urgency now in order to meet that future. And then there's the dilemma of, of the practicality right. of still needing to provide returns and, and the other things that businesses do. Well, I want to talk to you about that tension because... I'm really excited to hear your answer to this question. We are constantly faced with, you know, CFOs who haven't bought in or an ELT or an SLT, a leadership team or executive leadership team that hasn't bought into this work, partly because they've got so much downward pressure on their stock price or there's economic headwinds. They're not just saying no for no reason. 
And the way that we approach it is this, and then I'd love to hear how you approach it because you do it from the academic lens and the practitioner's lens as well. When we need to make the business case for why a company should be purposeful or take responsibility for its footprint and our future, we do three things. We look at the research out there to support it, independent, credible sources that makes, you know, provides the data. Then we look at the competitive set and saying, listen, even if you don't want to do it, it's instructive to know what others in your category or adjacent categories are doing. And that typically unlocks a little bit of that competitive instinct where you're like, well, if our nearest competitor is doing it, either they're really stupid or they're under something. And then the third piece is let's do a cost-benefit analysis of doing it, like what would it cost to do it to re-engineer our supply chain to celebrate DNI or elevate it internally or whatever it might be, and also not doing it, like cost savings and so on, but also a cost-benefit analysis of not doing it in the sense that if we don't do it, what could that cost us later on as opposed to what are the benefits? So it's kind of the, the research, the competitive analysis, and then a cost-benefit analysis of doing it, but also not doing it. What, what have you found works or doesn't work and why? You know, I, I think you really landed on it. it. In many ways, the research is what gives you the, the credibility of the data to, to stand on. We have a program at Thunderbird called the, the Global Challenge Lab. And, and part of what we're doing, because we're taking graduate students and we're putting them out into the world and they're consistently delivering high stakes, real projects as part of a, a capstone experience. And one of the things that we like to share with them is at the end of the day, regardless of Simon, you were born in a different part of the world than I was. We were perhaps raised differently. We might even have different ideologies. One thing that we all share in common, regardless of economic background, social status, is we all hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And we all fear that it might not be. Right. And, and it's, it's in some ways that combination of hope and fear and understanding how to weight which aspect of that for a given context of where a, a leadership team is in their decision-making profile, and then being able to support that through the modeling and, and through the the, the credibility research that you talked about that seems to have the, the biggest opportunity or increases the odds of being able to get hard things adopted through organizational systems. Right, right. And, you know, we're, we're talking about sort of incentivizing companies to do something different or show up in meaningful, measurable and defensible ways. And that's all in the context of the carrot. Like, hey, everyone, look at what this can do for your business and you'll win and keep the talent you need. You'll, you know, secure the purchases of conscious consumers. Your supplier network will level up its game. But there's also the other side. There's the stick side of it that I think is coming really fast. And that stick side of it could be extreme weather events that disrupt your supply chain, things that are beyond our control. But there are also things within our control that are coming. For example, climate justice lawsuits and these movements around stopping ecocide or ending ecocide, which is basically, you know, humanity, how it's destroying the natural world such that it's actually going to compromise our own survival. If you are having a private conversation with CEOs and so on, and you're having that sort of corridor chat and going, you know, you might want to think about doing this because there's some big sticks out there that are coming away to, to your company, your industry, to business at large. I mean, what would you say? Do you see that coming? Because I think the tolerance for not showing up in meaningful ways is sort of diluting with every passing sort of tragedy out there. And, and I think we can add to that this kind of growing mistrust for news in general. And so there's a, there, there's a certain skepticism about what people put out into the 
into the airwaves. I, I would completely agree with you. I, I would go back to the example that I shared with the CEO and he's convinced, and I share this conviction, that we're not very far off from a major exposure, if you will. There's too many enterprising reporters. There's too many just kind of convicted individuals and groups out there. And, you know, I think the words that he used with me were there, there's going to be a major brand who's going to have said something and be caught acting very, very differently from that. And that's going to have a shakeout. And I think that really speaks to what you were talking about, which is you've got these kind of industry level factors where you're swimming in a certain tide and, and there's going to be some sort of major event that is going to perhaps turn the tide of that industry. But then you have the individual kind of brand level or you have the individual company level where there's a lot of critical thinking slash maybe even bordering on skepticism. I hope it's healthy skepticism that is looking to find companies in inauthentic postures. And as those come to light and as we have better tools to quantify these statements that companies are making, I think that's going to be another part of the the potential shakeout. So you've got like the the big kind of macro events that can occur or the big regulatory events. And you can also have just the straight, yeah. you said this and you were actually found doing this other thing. And and we can now verify it. We can quantify that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think people are going to get caught in lots of different ways because the opportunities for exposure are so many. It's your supplier, it's your employee, it's your partner, it's your customer. I, I agree. Sometimes when I have meetings with companies that I, I feel like they want to do the right thing, but they're going to struggle to get there. It's because they don't have the right mindset in place. They're either caught up completely in their little bubble of their company, which you can understand, but it comes at a cost that you want to kind of reveal. Or the prevailing mindset of the industry is or the business at large is a kind of legacy mindset. So they don't feel like they've got to change because there's so many signals to tell them that everyone else is not changing. So why should they? And I deeply believe that you're not going to achieve new goals without a different mindset. And you've written extensively around mindset and I've read a lot of the stuff, you know, your mindset positioning and so on. Help us understand why is how you position your mindset kind of the first step you've got to take before you can hope to achieve any of these other goals that the world we live in is now necessitating? It's one of those words that is put out there with such frequency that in some ways it's kind of lost its, its definition. And so a, a big part of my work in that space was to say, how does mindset actually work? Like right. what is, what's the point of this and, and what does it activate in, in humans? And frankly, from a very positive perspective, how can leaders then foster these 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 really helpful mindsets in their teams. And I think it's helpful if, if we look at it from a bit of a, a diamond perspective. And if we start at the back end of that, we're all looking for outcomes. We all want results. And in order to get results, we know that we have to do a certain action or, or, or a certain type of activity. The temptation can be to then try to immediately regulate the the activity, right? Right. Well, if if uh, I have a certain level of sales at thirty calls, then I'm going to make forty calls, and magically I'm going to get a, a a better result. But if you're making those forty calls with the same mindset or with the same approach that you were making the thirty calls, just the sheer volume or doing more of the same thing isn't the predictor. What we found is the predictor of that 
is doing it with a higher level of quality. Yep. And how do we impact quality? Well, we impact quality by the attitude we engage in certain activities and we impact attitude through our mindset. So it's kind of the, 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 the fun little analogy is I, I like to share, you know, why do you jump when you watch a horror film when you know it's fake? Right. Right. And, and the reality is uh, it's because our, our mind is incredibly intricate, but it's also fairly simple. Right. And it processes believing something and actually experiencing something in the same way, which is why visualization and mindset and, and these these thought patterns are so important. So if we can inject very powerful thought patterns into our leadership practice, it's going to impact the attitude or the engagement with which we undertake actions. And that's going to impact the quality that we bring to the table. And it's that quality that is the better predictor of success rather than the quantity of our efforts. Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't think it can be overstated how important mindset is, not just you as a leader, but everyone inside the organization to articulate what that mindset is. And you know, with a view to the future and reverse engineering out of the past, sharing it company-wide and then letting that framework inform everyone's decision, because otherwise everyone else inside the company will be a drag on what you're trying to achieve. I gotta be honest, you know, Tom, I I have good days and bad days. I have days where I'm really worried about the future, and I have days where I look around and go with the innovation and entrepreneurship out there and so on, you know, it's breathtaking. You are, have for years, you know, been schooling the most and teaching the most, the brightest young minds in terms of the through the lens of innovation and impact. How do you feel about them? Are they equipped and inspired and ready to take on that future? Are you worried that there's sort of this bifurcation between healthy self-interest and the need to do something for the future? Is it unjust to expect them to fix the mess of previous generations? You have this deal flow of students all the time. What do you, for good or bad, I'm sure there's good days on that. Well, what's that like and what do you see? You know, first of all, I, I love the love the openness there, love the vulnerability, because I think anyone who is in a leadership position can relate to what you just described, yeah. right? We need to show up with positivity. And yet behind the scenes, there are some moments. I might add to it, I'm the father of, of three. Right. And so I, I think we also share this, where absolutely through the lens of our students, but then in a very personal way, yeah. there's the whole legacy effect of, are we... Are we leaving them better off than perhaps what we inherited and, and equipped to then do mm. the same for the subsequent generation? And I, I hope that that's a very standard notion. I hope that that's a pretty embedded notion. As we look at our grad students, I would say you use the word equipped. I, I might change it to the progressive. I think they're equipping. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a, it's a becoming process rather than an absolute state. Right. They really do have this, this care for being intentional. The number one kind of concentration within our degree programs has to do with some combination of sustainability and change and, and transformation. I think there's this real sense that those are not only necessary, but they're invigorating for these students at the same time. I, I think if we're really honest, it feels very daunting to right. some of them because we talk about things that are very, very large. And, and if we shrink ourselves down to the individual state, on the one hand, one person can have this incredible power. On the other hand, 
if we're not careful, we can leave our younger generation thinking, well, what can I do? Right. Because right. the system is rigged or there's so much kind of divisiveness out there. And I think, I think we need to be very mindful of what we're saying both intentionally, but also unintentionally when we overemphasize divisive parts of, of our society mm -hmm. versus the things that these, these students have in common. So I, on the, on the whole, I think absolutely there's this really strong desire to play their part and to be very beneficial to the, the future. And I think that's really exciting. And the equip being part of it is I think our generation really needs to meet them where their interests are. Right. And, and, you know, be honest about certain things that haven't worked really well, be very pragmatic in what we're sharing with them. We don't want to be Pollyannic in, in any way, but also kind of own our part, let them own their part and, and come together and, and see what we can do together here. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to admit my wife and I, we've lain in bed at night and we've kind of done the math. Okay. It, in 2035, they'll be having kids and then their kids and will be 20 at 2055. And, you know, you sort of map projections of what the world is going to look like. And as a parent, let alone a grandparent, you feel very responsible for that future. And we've heard our daughters say, hey, we're not sure if we're going to have kids or not for those very reasons. And, and it's very, very sobering because um, I'm going to be a really annoying grandparent at one point. I had hope. So I was looking forward <laughs> to that. But the other thing I'd say is this. I want to ask you the $64,000 question, which bothers me is, Sometimes we're drinking our own Kool-Aid, Tom. We're, we're swimming in these circles of people that, to, for better or worse, to different degrees, actually want to make a difference. But the reality is the vast majority of folks out there don't, and the majority of business out there haven't engaged. And there's three forces amongst many others that I see working against us. For example, legacy industries and companies that have made you know, God's money by doing things that either compromise people on the planet. Secondly, there are, especially in the global south, many people that want their day in the sun, their day at the banquet table of capitalism, you know, their flat screen TVs and laptops and, and God knows what, these consumable, you know, products. And they feel like, you know, that they deserve that. So they're propelling the behaviors that have got us into this mess in the first place. And then thirdly, you've got this vast and growing majority of people around the world for whom the luxury of fixing the future that is just beyond their imagination, they're just living off under $6 or $10 a day, just trying to find clean water or find electricity and so on. So when you've got these legacy brands, these aspiring middle classes, you've got the disproportionately affected around the world, how are we going to overcome that inertia, those forces working against what we're trying to achieve? You know, and I think it was Bill Gates who recently uh, put a bit of a, a practical anchor out there. And he said, it's going to be really hard to achieve these objectives if our primary lever is to ask people to consume less. And I think in large part, it's because of what you just described, mm -hmm. right? A global development has not happened in a linear fashion. And once a certain group comes up to the point where they can consume what they have watched others consume, they're going to want to, to be able to do that. Likewise, it's really counterintuitive for someone's personal to someone's personal interest to say, of my own volition, I'm going to profit less so that the collective can profit more. I don't know that we have perfect answers yeah. to that. I think part of it is 
certainly shining a light on the importance as, as we're doing. So, I mean, we saw it uh, just in, in the way we're looking at human capital today is quite different than the way we looked at it even a couple of, of years ago. We say multi-stakeholderism, and yet for too long, it was really investors and consumers. It was people who put money into the pot and everything else was considered a cost. I think we're starting to see a bit of a shift there. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know that I have the perfect response for what's creating that shift, yeah. but we're starting to see human capital being viewed differently. We're starting to see far more emphasis on climate and 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 just kind of these these global issues that, that we did otherwise. So I, I don't know if it's any one thing, but I am encouraged that we are seeing some movement in this direction. Yeah, I actually agree. I think the dialogue around human capital, how we treat other people, each other, our employees, diversity and inclusion, it's very, very kind of top of mind right now. And also natural capital, how we're starting to see dollar value put on everything from wet grasses to blue whales, you know, so that we can actually start to recognize that Every, every, every element within the ecosystem is playing a, a material role that's going to either positively or negatively affect our future. And here's my random theory, because I don't think we have perfect answers to this either. And I'd love to hear your thoughts, to, your opinion on this. In opposition to the screen lives we're living and you and I are doing right now, we need to spend more time in the natural world. Why? Because I think it will reinforce and remind us of our hardwired emotional chemical connection to each other in the natural world. And when we're in the natural world, we have these experiences of awe, whether you see a mountain, a sunset, a river, whatever the hell it might be for you. And when you do that, it kind of explodes this sort of human-centric, me-centric framework that we consciously or unconsciously have where everything has to be built around us and our well-being and our stuff. And we are put back in our context where we are part of a larger system rather than in control of that system. And you only, you most effectively get that visceral experience of it when you reimmerse yourself in nature. And I think during COVID, some of us found that when we felt so anxious and fearful and concerned, where we felt the restorative potential of the natural world. But I think more broadly than that, and we're hearing it from indigenous cultures out there, you know, the way back is through nature. And by doing so, we'll better serve nature and we'll recognize not that we have to have less and all that sort of thing, although obviously that's implied, but rather we're, we'll recognize that we're part of something that's larger and you need to protect the whole so the parts can thrive. And I think nature is the, the door we need to walk through to get back to that. I, I love what you just said, Simon. And, and one, I share that completely. And I, I'm not expert in this space, but I can tell you just from a personal experience, getting out to nature or smelling the pines as as we would say in in my part of the world is th there is something very regenerative yeah. about that experience i i think we could also take it a step further and we could say as we can continue to evolve this this analogy this concept of business from a mechanistic approach to a biological mm -hmm. approach mm -hmm. whereby we are all parts of an ecosystem and that ecosystem only thrives to the extent that there is some sort of integrated interests. I think that's a, that's a really helpful way for us to, to, to look at this. My biggest concern is how the hell are we going to get all of us, including me, who looks at his phone 75 bazillion times a day, 
back out there. Like what I've done is I've committed in the last six months to get back in the ocean more. I grew up in Australia. I love the water. And so twice a week I've been, in, I've been surfing and I'm a crap surfer. I look like an old man drowning and he's holding onto a plank. <laughs> like what is... At least you can get up, Simon, right? I mean, that's, that's more than most of us. I know, right? Well, if you, if you get up, then you fall over and I guess that's called a ride, <laughs> right? What the hell? Who cares? Um, but what's your big concern when you, you know, you have such a a unique perspective, not only on younger generations coming through, but all your practitioners' works and your innovation work and so on. What's the worry that you have right now? You know, the the worry is that we will focus so much on what we have that is different or what is what is different among us that we will lose sight of what is common mm. among us. For you, as as I'm listening to you, and I share that, although I'm I'm worse than a crap surfer, um, <laughs> but my thing is I, I I love to hike, I love to get out, and so there's this um, there's something that happens when you put yourself in direct contact hmm. with that thing that you're trying to commune with, right. be it nature or interpersonal dynamics. Yeah. It, it was a it was a an, an interesting experiment, and in some ways a pretty poor experiment to see how we started to treat one another when we no longer had direct contact with one another. Oh, interesting. We no longer lived in, in commune with one another. It's just, it's, it's much easier to be the worst version of ourselves or the most kind of a highest bravado form of ourselves when I don't see you uh, walking down the street or, or, or when we don't share a, a common space together. And so I, I'm a big fan of hybrid approaches to things, but I think hybrid needs to be very intentional in that from the sense that we have to commune with one another if we're going to appreciate the personhood above the politic or above any of these other things that we're otherwise kind of way too prone to use to 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 divide us or to draw us down. Yeah, I think there's a double one-two punch here that could be very destructive. One is this sort of separate living that we have, especially here in the United States, because I know in Australia and Europe, a lot of people are all back at work and they have that direct experience. But here in the States, not so much. When we're distanced from each other, we have less of a sense of belonging to a community, big or small, whether it's your state, your city, your company, whatever it might be. And, you know, you see that manifesting with a great resignation and people being very flighty these days because they don't have that water cooler talk. They don't care about the people as much that they work with and so on because they don't see them. But then because of that, the concurrent divisiveness that's being compounded by social media in many ways and other ways, because what we share about ourselves kind of tells the algorithm what's going to be reflected back to us in terms of content or headlines and that sort of intensifies or pol you know, polarizes us even more. And so not only do we lose that sense of belonging, but those other forces out there that are pulling us apart then have greater sway over us, you know? Yeah, you know, and, and, and so in some ways, as we look for anecdotes, uh, just like in strategy or, or other things, in many ways, the, the, the counterweight to what to do is really understanding what not to do. And so mm. There's there's this healthy need to be able to describe the types of things that I'm not going to engage in. But I think there's also the counterweight that says, if I'm too much in a virtual world, then what I really need is physical presence. Right. Or if I'm too much in a in a particular state, then what I really need is the opposite 
of that or the, the, the counter weight to that. I mean, I can tell you just, and, and I imagine you've experienced the same, just, you know, working with different groups around the world and, you know, certainly in our own institution, it was almost like this revival moment when right. people could actually pull the masks off and embrace each other again. And it was, um, it was interesting that it got to that point. And yet I think there's still this kind of relic or this need to shed some of the, 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 the distance or the disconnectedness that came to be more the norm when we were living in that, that yeah. hyperversion state. I, I completely agree. It was so funny. It got to the point, not funny, but unusual where it got to the point of like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm terrible. Oh my God, I am falling apart. Like everyone was just like, <laughs> oh my God. We've all it was got like it's raced to the bottom yeah. because <laughs> nobody could have any joy yeah. and nobody was allowed to have good things going on, right? And also they're like, oh my God, I was drinking at 9 a.m. this morning. They said, remember the first few months of COVID where everyone was just like, it's the end of times and so on. But then as soon as somebody says, oh, I'm okay, then everyone else is like, no, I'm okay too. And you sort of scatter back to this old mindset. I have to say in that context, these are, you know, really, really unique circumstances that we hopefully, but may not never see again. And they, in the circumstances like that reveal things that otherwise wouldn't be revealed. And so I want to ask you something. I'll share my version of it first, which is like, what has this last two and a half years of extraordinary kind of challenges to leadership and community and impact and so on, what has it taught you personally as a leader as to where you might be falling short and how you need to show up differently? And I will, I'll give you mine. My, my, my version is I really needed to step back and let go and trust others more within my organization and with the partners and so on that I work with. Up to that point, I think I was holding on too tight. I was white knuckling too much and didn't allow myself to sort of open my hands and receive what is so readily available if you just give others the chance. And I kicked myself about that. But these circumstances provoke that. And I see that as a gift. What did you observe as someone who teaches about leadership and so on? You know, and, and if we were white knuckling before this experience, just imagine how much more we were white knuckling when we couldn't see each other. Yeah. Or when we were inventing these theories, these stories of what somebody must be doing on the on the, the company dime or any any number of things. I so I I certainly shared that. I, I tend to be a fairly private person. I would right. much rather ask questions and listen than I would stand in front of the group and, and deliver a bit of a, a a dialogue or a bit of a monologue. I found, however, and was even asked on a number of occasions, let us in a little bit more. Let us hmm. let us know you as a as a person. We, you know, we we enjoy and respect you as a, a leader. We enjoy and respect you as a professional. And we're curious about you as a person, but we don't necessarily feel like we really know you in that sense. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to overstate this because I do think there's a, can be a very healthy kind of balance between work life and, and uh, other life. But if we are really going to appreciate and focus on belonging, and we are really going to focus on someone's personhood before any of the other markers that might be used to describe them, then we have to know them. We have to to understand and appreciate a little bit where they're coming from. And, and frankly, we have to find ourselves in these experiences where we disagree, mm -hmm. but do so mutually respectfully and, and, yeah. and appreciate the the, that that's a that's a perfectly natural way to live diversity in its in its true form and its true manifestation. 
So it sounds like these bridging dynamics that kind of bring people back together and allow them to kind of maybe have different points of view, but still communicate effectively and not get polarized. Is, is that sort of what's showing up for you right now? Or? Completely, completely. You know, it's interesting. We use the word inclusion, and yet if we're not careful, inclusion can look and feel very superficial. Right. When in reality, inclusion is always, has always been intended to be this very embedded way of dealing, right? Where, Simon, you bring something to the table that complements what I bring to the table, and, and somebody else brings another thing to that table. And in order to get to this, this powerful innovation or this, this fantastic collective, i got to hear from you. I've got to listen to you. I've got to yeah. understand you. I've got to know where you're coming from. And I'm not going to agree with all of it but I'm going to appreciate where it's coming from. And for us to complement, then we have to be willing to kind of have this collective goal, but appreciate that it's it's going to take a diversity of opinions in order to surface something that's going to represent those integrated interests that we're really aiming for to get back to the beginning of the conversation in that multi-stakeholder kind of capitalism aspiration. And so... So what would your advice be? I mean, you know, there are so many moving parts to our experience of life and so many components that would need to be adjusted to get us where we want to go. But someone in your position, you get to go, you know what, if I could pull any lever or inspire people to do just one thing right now, that can make disproportionate difference in their life, in their business, in our future. What would your advice be? Because, you know, there are solopreneurs, there are entrepreneurs, there are, you know, business executives listening to this. What's that one thing that you would say right now, really focus on this? Yeah, you know, it's, it's always hard to pick the, the one thing. So I might hedge a little bit on you, Simon, and, and, and maybe have two things. But if we're looking at it at the, at the individual, the agent level, I would say find yourself in the kind of by the way moments in the day to day looking at your environment and trying to see opportunities for new advantages, improvements, even in the, the common experiences that are around you. And use that as a, a, a way, a mechanism to kind of roll up into bigger, potentially grander thoughts. The other thing I would say is very intentionally find yourself initiating conversations or engaging with media or sources that aren't part of your natural algorithm, that actually probably bring a little bit different lens to the table and, and find yourself trying to bring this learning is always the answer mindset to the table as, as you do so. Um, what we find is it just tends to, to not only put you in a different place in order to see things that you would have otherwise missed or frankly that other people are missing, but it tends to make you far more collaborative. And, and, and those are really the kind of the, the, the premium skills we're looking for as, as we move forward in innovation. We need people who in under bias or less biased ways can see new opportunities and are willing to do the heavy lifting of connecting, but frankly also are bridge builders and, and can collaborate with others and, and get things done, even if those people don't share every single kind of granular aspect in common with you. I think it's funny you talked about this learning experience because I think I have a similar point of view, but I would express it differently, which is, and this is sort of a funny old thing for me to say, but I almost 
hope that people can go digital on things. And what I mean by that is a lot of the times we feel hopeless or incapable of making a difference or feel paralyzed because of the emotion we put around something. The future looks scary. The industry is corrupt or morally bankrupt or whatever it might be. Um, this problem seems so large. And so we stall, we're stalled by our emotion. But if we take that emotion out of it and just look at it as a different creative brief, a different innovation opportunity where the parameters are different, but you take the emotion out of it and then you solve for it the same way you would solve for a problem when everyone is, you know, fat and happy and, you know, everything's good and everything's rosy and the sun is shining. But I just think that as soon as, soon as we can do that, we can start to recognize that these challenges are marketplace opportunities in disguise and that we are completely capable of solving for them, especially when we show up as our best selves and, and want to listen to others and collaborate, as you say. But I think sometimes our emotion gets in the way. I don't know what you think of that, but I sometimes we're our own worst enemy. Let me compliment it because I really like what you said there. I, I, I might change the word slightly and rather than remove the emotion, mm. I might say pause the emotion because right. emotion is what gets us out of bed in the morning, right? Yeah. We, we Emotion is what it's, it's, it's the, it's the, and, and a zoom call, oh. you know, you know, those two things, but yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so if, if we can, but I, I think you're absolutely right in the sense that pausing the emotion sufficiently to kind of check our biases to the extent possible, or to check these tendencies to kind of reject something that doesn't feel normal to us, or doesn't feel like our, our, our kind of prevailing norms is really, really helpful. And then maybe rehire the emotion when it's time to get something done. Right, right. We've got to turn that into action somehow. I couldn't agree more. And, and I just want to say, Tom, firstly, I have so much respect for your books and your thought leadership and how you've really empowered so many young people to show up in the world really, really meaningfully. So I'd encourage everyone to sort of follow Tom and, and, and really sort of learn from his thinking. And, you know, thanks for not only the time today, but the insights on the strength of your unique line of sight, because... This is a moment in time. I, I do believe it's probably the most important decade for humanity in terms of, you know, our future. And so we all need to be on point and we need our, you know, biggest hearts and brightest minds pointed in the right direction. So I can't thank you enough, Tom. Likewise, couldn't agree more. It was a lot of fun and, and really enjoy your work as well and, and appreciate the opportunity to collaborate here. All right. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Lead with We. Our show is produced by Goal 17 Media, and you can always find more information about our guests in the show notes of each episode. Make sure you follow Lead with We on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you really love the show, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you're looking to go even deeper into the world of purposeful business, check out my new book and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Lead with We, which is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Google Books. See you again soon, and until then, let's all Lead with wind.